Bible to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians and think as you open this chapter today, one of the, think with me, of one of the songs that uh, Justin and the team led us in, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That great wraparound promise from Jesus, that declaration of what it means to truly be disciples is so relevant for the cultural impact that the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians brings to us in thinking again, as we talked about last week, just a two-part brief snapshot of this half of a chapter to focus on an issue that is so relevant in our lives right now, the cultural dynamic around the child of God today is more hostile to the things that are closest to our hearts on many levels than they've been in many decades. And there are many reasons for that. But the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians is such a fascinating connection point for where we find this challenge today for each of us to be people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, today we focus primarily on these um, 5th through 13th verses, and if you were with us last week, I'm going to track back a little bit to look at how the five different um, negative examples from the Old Testament relate to the cultural challenge the Apostle Paul found when discipling the people of God in the city of Corinth. Before we get to that, I'd like you just to notice in your own Bible, and hope you have your own copy. As we just move right past the part that we focused on last week, this... Um, powerful way that God showed how that through redeeming his people out of the slavery of sin, out of the slavery of Egypt, we got a picture last week of what real salvation is. It is the redeeming work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ bringing us out of our slavery to sin, just as the children of Israel brought out of the slavery in Egypt, and the parting of the waters of the Red Sea that's referenced in those first verses, being immersed in the cloud and in the sea under Moses, looking at those unusual expressions, relates directly to how we live in Christ being separated in a way we could never have separated ourselves. Think of the comparison again. Children of Israel in Egypt, they're slaves They've been there for over 400 years. Their entire cultural heritage is anchored in the realm of slavery. The mighty miracle of the parting of the waters of the Red Sea foreshadows the, the greater miracle none of us could have done for ourselves, and that is to be brought out of the death of our sin into the life-giving power of Christ because Christ himself brought us through the waters of the Red Sea. He went through the waters of death, burial, and resurrection and brings us out on the other side. Now, because of that, there's this parallel in those opening verses 
And the word all appears five times. All of them were under the cloud. All of them were under the sea. All of them drank the same spiritual drink. All of them ate the same spiritual food. And they all were following and finding the rock of God's provision in the wilderness. And that rock was God revealing who Christ would be to us. Now that's the background. But look at this fifth verse and, and, and let us feel today the impact of a challenge that we all have to admit doesn't feel very comfortable. Look at the fifth verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But with most of them. Now let's first contract the, contrast the all of the first uh, verses. They all got to drink from Christ. They all got to follow Christ figuratively. They all got to drink the spiritual drink. They all were set free because of what God did through Moses. And Paul's writing is intending to link that to you and me, that all of us in Christ are given this priceless inheritance to receive what he did for us on the cross. But verse 5 then places this very stern reminder in the middle of a text that is elevating who our Savior Christ is, the rock of our salvation. And what is that stern reminder? With most of them, wow, would you say most? With most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now that certainly, of course, is a very um, stark way <laughs> to, to illustrate the fact that even when we have experienced the wondrous gift of salvation through faith in Christ that can never be taken away from us, even with the assurance that Jesus gave us in John 10 that no one can pluck you from my Father's hand, even with the assurance of the promise of 1 John 5.10, these things we've written unto you that you may believe in the Son of God and that believing you may know that you have eternal life. Even with the great assurance of Romans 8 that in Christ we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that wonderful news? Neither tribulation, nor distress, nor persecution, nor peril, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor the sword, nor any other creature can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And yet... The warning persists. What is the warning for? Clearly, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5 and 6, we get God's warning that in spite of the wondrous riches of your eternal inheritance in Christ, you, yes, you, and yes, me, we can miss God's best in this life. On my way to glory, waiting for that eternal reward, when I exit this earth suit 
and I enter into his immediate presence. Where 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 says that to see him be to be like him, for we will see Christ as he is. So even as we look forward to the eternal dimension that is beyond any human description, still the warning persists. What's the warning? What's the warning for? Let's read that sixth verse. Now, these things, these things referring to most of those who missed out on God's best in the wilderness, even though they were redeemed, these things became our examples. Now, remember, Paul is writing to the same saints that he has addressed in chapter 1. Would you take a moment? Just flip in your Bible back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Just briefly look at the first two verses of chapter 1 and the 6th and 7th verse. Very quickly, notice this. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are... What does your Bible say? Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. The simplest definition of saint here is one set apart to the divinely decreed purposes of God. Uniquely set apart. A status none of us could ever have attained for ourselves. It is purely Because of the mighty, redeeming blood of our Savior Jesus. Through death, burial, and resurrection has delivered us from the slave market of sin. Has brought us into a new life in Christ. And in that new life, we're called the saints. That's why I've jokingly said through the years, if I ever quote someone like uh, Aquinas or Augustine, I never say Saint, I just say Brother Augustine. Because all of us in Christ are in that same status. Do you see that? You see how vital that is? Look at the rest of that second verse of 1 Corinthians 1. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And then look at verse 6 and 7. Again, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come Behind in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to believers who've experienced this wondrous gift of being set free from sin. Set apart to the eternal purposes of God. And know it came only because of the shed blood of their Savior. Hallelujah. And then toggle back to chapter 10. So when you go back to chapter 10, here are the recipients. And in verse 6 of chapter 10, he says, These stern warnings are our examples. For what purpose? 1 Corinthians 10, 6. So that we would not lust after evil things as they also lusted. If it were not possible 
for a child of God who's experienced all these great benefits that we've talked about, if it were not possible for that child of God to be snared by his or her own internal passions in a way that would steal the rich benefits of walking with God, then there would be no warning here. The warning is there. Why? Because of the magnitude of our Heavenly Father's love. Paul is echoing here a principle we find in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, 17 to 19, the prophet Isaiah, I believe, creating a prophetic foreshadowing of what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of our Savior Jesus. Isaiah says, come now, come now, and let us reason together. Let us engage in some thought-provoking conversation, in other words. Come now, God says, and that invitation continues today. The Father comes to us not only in the wondrous drawing of, of the Holy Spirit's presence in worship, which is a continuous source of refreshing for our soul, but God also, he also comes to us as a father who needs to sit down and have a talk with, let's say, a teenage or older son or daughter and says, let's have a conversation. Let's discuss some things. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then he adds this in Isaiah 1.18. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now, this, this parallels what Paul the Apostle is speaking to New Testament Christians. I think a good way to summarize what he's doing here is he's showing how true worshipers, true followers of the Lamb, face the opposing winds of a culture around us where evil is celebrated. It would take way too long for me to cite many examples. So I'm just going to cherry pick one little flashpoint. And I know when I say this, all of you will say, oh, I'm seeing similar things in my social media thread or my environment. Just one example. Um, school system of Fort Collins, Colorado. I like that town. Biked that town. And I have some good friends that live in Fort Collins, so it kind of got my attention. And the school system offered a, an art class for elementary school kids. And one family wanted their 10-year-old daughter to make friends in the new school system she just come to. So she says, oh, that's a great place to start. I'll go to the art class. Goes to the art class. Turns out it's an LGBTQT something else group aimed at aimed at letting her know that she can start thinking about what she really is whether a girl or boy in different ways than she ever even thought about 
and then began to manipulate her with the notion that she should never tell her parents what's going on in this art club. Now, the documentation is unmistakable. I checked it out. It's unmistakable. And it is being run by a group called Splash, Northern Colorado group aimed at literally invading the innocence of little minds with a perverse ideology that then is complicated by the vow of secrecy we don't talk about this, and emails from the teacher and one of the staff members engaged in this volunteer club, emails that I've read, clearly show this was not an accident, this is not a, a one-off, this is intentional. This, in fact, was the reason for the art club. Now, I told you, that's one little example. That's one example. But you know... There are many examples. What am I talking about? I'm talking about a cultural environment that we live in that has put us in a situation many parents never dreamed they'd face. And that is to entrust our children to people whose goal is supposed to be education, who now have some other, in some cases, not by no means painting with a broad brush here, of course, but in, have other agendas going on. Now, in your text, go back and notice that the flow of context in chapter 9 and 10 gives us some other insight into why Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. And in this application to our time, what I hope we could see quickly here is that the Apostle Paul gave such a stern warning that we wrestled with here for several minutes for the reason that Paul knew the cultural reality of the city of Corinth very well. And in addressing what it would mean to be what chapter 1 said, to be saints in Christ at Corinth. Now somebody might say, well it would be one thing to be at Corinth, be absorbed in the culture, it would be another thing to be a saint in Christ, but to be in Christ at Corinth? Can I do that? Oh, of course, you know you can, don't you? You know you can because Jesus prayed for all of us in John 17. I pray, Father, in John 17, verse 3, that you sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. And then in verse 20 of John 17 said, My Father, I do not pray that you take them out. Let me apply it this way. I do not pray that you take them out of Corinth. I do not pray that you take them out of Colorado. I do not pray that you take them out of Carroll County. But that you reveal your glory through these redeemed in Carroll County, in Colorado, in Corinth. Could you say aloud with me today, in Christ at Corinth. Would you say that? In Christ at Corinth. Now would you say in Christ in Carroll County. Would you say that? In Christ, in Carroll County. So whatever we encounter, we are called to be people who rise above, who prevail. Not soaked into the culture, not hiding fearfully from the culture, but impacting the culture 
because in Christ you are salt, light, and a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. That's what Paul's after. And the illustration he uses in chapter 9 and chapter 10 look radically different, and yet they're making, they're two different illustrations making the same point. Chapter 9, scroll back to chapter 9 and look just briefly at the last three or four verses of chapter 9, because there we see that Paul speaks of the, the runner in a race. And it's, it's a very familiar image to us, It's because Paul often draws from the Olympic Games in his writing about the pursuit of following Christ. And then he concludes the chapter by saying in verse 25 that everyone, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run this way, not with uncertainty. No, no, no. He says, I fight like a train, like a guy training to be a prize fighter, and I'm not beating the air aimlessly. I'm training for what I'll face. Then you go into chapter 10. He uses the illustration. Just as a, just as a runner, all are run, but only one gets the prize. So... Chapter 10 says, all the Israelites drank and partook of Moses and the cloud and the sea, and yet not all of them got the full benefit. And then when you think about it like this, the seaport city of Corinth is a classic example that parallels to being in a culture that is alien to the one whom Paul is glorifying, the seaport city of Corinth in the, in the valley below the ancient temple of Aphrodite. The goddess Aphrodite in the Greek culture was a goddess whose entire aura and, and entire environment was the spurring on of the full expression of sensual lusts in all its varied forms, so that there wasn't even a religious overtone to a vast variety of old practices across the spectrum of human experience. And because of the location of Corinth, when the Apostle Paul arrived there as a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla, Paul perceived its location not only because of its history, a hundred years before he got there, Julius Caesar had revived this little fledgling place at an, on a tiny isthmus between the Aegean and the Aphean Sea area. It was a vital sea link for safe seafaring merchants. And when Julius Caesar revived it, by the time Paul gets there a hundred years later, this has become a bustling seaport of, of great significance to the Roman Empire. And the geography served that purpose because this very narrow isthmus, less than nine miles apart at its narrowest section, became the, the land bridge for people to move uh, more rapidly across in order to find a way to get across to the other sea. And then when that wasn't possible, then to make the longer journey around the boot of Italy. But here is this, uh, here is this entire... Um, place of 
this uh, thriving metropolis that became like the picture of cosmopolitan, sophisticated living and attracted sailors from all over that part of the Roman Empire. And kind of like many seaport cities today, it had that vibe of the cool place to be. Periodically, the 1,000 prostitutes of the Aphrodite cult would descend into that valley below and they would come there in order to take advantage of the vast numbers of people crisscrossing Corinth. It was there that the Apostle Paul saw and established the principle that long before 1900 years almost, before they finally cut a channel through that isthmus, that center of activity became a picture of the saint, the child of God, implanted in the world. And what did Paul want from them? Back in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, uh, 12, and 13, Paul wanted these believers to know how to stand. Do you remember that great, uh, you remember that great promise in Ephesians 6 that says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Now that's the positive, proactive instruction of the Holy Spirit. You can stand in a culture that is celebrating evil. And not only can you stand, you can thrive. And not only can you thrive, you can prevail. And not only can you prevail, you can be one of those people to whom those who are caught in the downward spiral of those vices see in you a sparkling hope of a different kind of life. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul tells them, take heed lest you think you stand when you're not really standing. So you, we, might, we might ask, you know, kind of what is, the, what is the real heart of this challenge? Well, Paul toggles back and forth between the Corinthians and the Israelites, and he draws that comparison for this reason. Psalm 78 would be a good takeaway chapter today, leaving just to read that 78th Psalm when you're home today, because it, it goes through this whole panorama. The Israelites were miraculously blessed by God again and again. Manna came from heaven. Water came from the rock. Lepers were healed. The sea was opened. God Almighty met with Moses at the tent of meeting. And yet Psalm 78 records it like this, that time and time and time again, the people became disloyal to God in their hearts. So that ultimately, almost an entire generation died in the wilderness. So this is why this very stern, and obviously a very stern warning that we wrap this around today, is worth considering in the culture we're in. The question is, how are these perils that we face parallel? Well, certainly the parallels in our culture are many, but one of the wonderful things about a chapter like this is that it equips us to see that wherever you are planted as a child of God, you can overcome the things that would diminish your joy in Christ. 
And in a worshiping community like this, in a body of believers where people gather to glorify God and magnify His Word and be sources of encouragement one to another, your faith can grow so that when you go into a situation where evil seems to be almost not just tolerated, but celebrated, you can begin to say, wait a minute, God must have a reason for putting me here. I've always loved this little example. Dr. Howard Hendricks gave many years ago as a seminary professor. Some seminary student came to him really, really down in the middle of a very difficult semester and said, Dr. Hendricks, I just don't know how to say this, but I'm having the hardest time because the job that I'm working in, I'm the only, I'm the only Christian in that entire crew. And Howard Hendricks looked at him and has got that sparkle in his eye. And he said, you mean to tell me that the Lord Jesus has entrusted that whole company to you? And the point was, wherever you are, be where you are. But Paul is appealing to these people not just to feel their loyalty to God, but to think about it. I want to leave you just with this helpful helpful insight, I think, because of the very dynamic we're talking about, it requires us to step back and think sometimes. Gordon MacDonald shared this great insight in a, in a, in a great book originally produced, um, originally copyrighted in 1984, reproduced, uh, re, uh, republished in 2003. Great little book. It's a classic that I'd encourage anybody to read. It's called Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. And in this book, McDonald talks about one of the forgotten challenges of the child of God is to sharpen our thinking about the culture we live in. And he put it this way, thinking is a great work. The unthinking Christian does not realize it, but he's dangerously absorbed into the culture about him. Without thinking actively, he falls prey to lies by those with an antichrist agenda who have outthought him. Some of those seeking to influence the current debates over gender and other controversial issues simply have outthought. They're out ahead trying to seize the minds of children. It's true in many other areas of life. And the challenge Paul is talking about is to be there. It's to, it's to be there. This is why that connection that he gave them was the crossing of the Red Sea. Now think about this for your own life. The crossing of the Red Sea did not only save the Israelites, it separated them, but not to be in some enclave, it separated them to be a light, to become a, a, a treasured possession a royal priesthood. And Paul, again, he parallels that in chapter 6 of the same book when he says, all of us have been a part of this culture we're talking about. There's no condemnation here. This is not a message of, of condemning people caught up in various lifestyles. No, far from it. 
The good news of the gospel is that anyone can be set free by the wonderful gift of the good news of Jesus Christ to have a whole new perspective on life. It's not just getting fire insurance to be sure I'm going to go to heaven when I die. No, it is a kingdom of God lifestyle that brings us into new life. And in this new life, we see many of the things that even we in this room here together Many of the things we all had some attachment to. Once you came to love Christ with your whole heart, things that you would have looked at fondly have a whole different appearance now. And many times there are things that are neutral. They're not necessarily either bad nor good in in some context, and yet they become an overpowering part, a kind of an idol in the heart. And whatever God has done in our lives, we stand, as he said to the believers in Corinth, all of us were among the very people we're reaching out to in love today. All of us were a part of expressions of life that now we know were not the design of God for our soul. But when you encountered the good news of Jesus Christ, He says it, and I just summarize it here. You were washed. You were saved. You were sanctified by the blood of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is where the victory lies. This is why we're called to prevail in a culture that often celebrates evil, not just for ourselves, not just to protect ourselves, but to prevail with the good news of the risen Savior whose nail-pierced hand reveal in all of eternity the glory of the Lamb who says to every sinner in every form of sin, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Spirit and the bride say, come, let whosoever will may come, let him who is a thirst drink the water of life freely. As we join for prayer, could you join with me in a prayer that we might, in, in our individual challenges, our surroundings, our jobs, our social media connections, our relationships, our neighborhoods, Could we pray together that with renewed awakening of our soul, we might know that being good news people, living in the vitality of a daily relationship with Jesus, means we can prevail over culture so that we can be lights shining in every place we're called to be. As we pray together, give God thanks for a complete deliverance. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that in our hearts today, we could just take to heart what, what sounds to our ears, our, our, our Western ears, don't, uh, don't immediately respond to the stern warnings. We, we, we almost feel like it's a discordant note. And yet it's a, it's a note, it's a stern warning note of great grace. Because it is you giving us this, this amazing example 
Israelites so miraculously blessed by God and yet became disloyal in their hearts? Can it happen to followers of Christ? Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see where any, anything in our life would compromise that loyalty, that passionate, fiery love that you put in our hearts when we first fell in love with Christ. Make that burn more brightly today. Give us eyes to see what it means to prevail, prevail in Christ in perilous times. In Jesus' name, amen.